Well, good afternoon. This is Rick Kite with the D.B. Reinhardt Institute for Ethics and Leadership. And this is episode six of the series Ethics Today. And what we've been doing is talking with people from a variety of uh, walks of life just to get a better understanding of the world we're living in right now, which seems to me especially important now that we're in a pandemic and certain kinds of everyday decisions that we just kind of take for granted um, are now suddenly momentous. Like, uh, you know, just whether, like whether to go to the grocery store or not, whether to wear a, a face mask at the grocery store, this can turn out to be a life or death decision. Um, yet we often don't think of these as ethical decisions because we, um, the, the real burden of the decision-making is in getting the facts right. If, if we know that something we're doing could be very dangerous for somebody else, we're very likely to change our behavior. But if we don't think that it will be that dangerous, we won't. And so that's, that's why this is called ethics today, even though we're not really talking a lot about ethical reasoning. And um, so in part of this attempt to get a better understanding of what kind of world we're living in right now, I've uh, asked Chris Main to join us. Chris is a biology professor at Viterbo University. And um, I know in the past, uh, since we're colleagues, we've had some discussions about different kinds of testing and about vaccinations and immunity and all these things. And this is something I have all kinds of questions about and, and you know, a lot of people do right now. So. Chris, thank you for joining us and uh, to talk about this. Yeah, it's great, great. Well, could, let's just start out by talking about testing because I keep hearing about the availability of tests, about how important tests are for getting the economy going again, um, and yet there are different kinds of tests. So could you just explain what are the different kinds of tests and like how they differ and, and then why they're important in different ways? Yeah. So. Basically, right now, there's sort of two categories of tests that uh, are being talked about and are being utilized. And both of these are just based upon really pretty basic uh, technologies that are used in research labs. I mean, we can do them with students uh, right at Turbo University. And uh, one is for identification of the actual virus in an individual. And so this is the one you've probably heard of that has the nasopharyngeal swab that goes to the back of your nasal cavity and swabs. Uh, the very back of your nasopharynx. And that's actually for detection of infection because that's looking for the actual detection of the virus itself. And so in order to do that, they're simply identifying specific sequences in the actual nucleic acids of that virus and then amplifying them in order to get a certain signal, comparing it to various controls. And that's how we detect whether there's an infection or not. And so that's as opposed to what are called the seroprevalence tests, which you hear a lot about as well. So seroprevalence tests are meant to detect people who have previously been exposed to the virus and will have uh, theoretically raised an immune response. So, so that's, those tests, that's, that's the antibody test, is that right? Exactly, okay. exactly. And so what that's looking for is looking for antibodies in the serum, in the blood, for people who have been exposed and hopefully raised an effective immune response against that virus. So sort of two different categories, both really important for public health, but important for different reasons, but then some also uh, being considered um, important for things like economics and in uh, kind of ending some of these, uh, or trying to sort of do the, the bouncing back from some of the, the uh, safer at home approaches that we've taken. So if, 
if I have my if my understanding is correct here, so the the detect just detecting the presence of the virus. This is mainly so that we know to keep. You'd want to then perhaps seek treatment, but more importantly, stay away from infecting others because you could be asymptomatic, right? And exactly, exactly. And so this is where the initial testing sort of uh, deficit that we ran into occurred was that we did not have an effective test initially in the United States. Um, we were not testing enough. Uh, we are probably still not testing near enough. And so the fact that this virus and this disease is particularly effective at infecting some people and having them be so-called silent spreaders of the disease uh, makes it very challenging. Unlike a typical pandemic influenza that we've had before, they didn't spread quite the same or as fast because generally people who had gotten that pandemic influenza felt really terrible immediately. So they would sort of self-isolate, you know, often whether they wanted to or not because they felt terrible. But now with this uh, novel coronavirus, people can often move around throughout society without having essentially any symptoms and constantly be spreading this disease. So moving forward, being able to have enough tests to test anybody or everybody, identify those individuals, uh, trace them to who they've actually encountered and isolate them. The so-called test trace isolate approach I think is going to be highly important. So, if, so that's gonna be important just for keeping track of who, who is infected currently, then the antibody test is to find out who has been exposed and maybe de and developed antibodies. But does, does that automatically mean such a person is immune? Uh, yeah, and that's, that's a great question. And this is where we get at the crux of the challenge of antibody tests. So right now, this disease is so new that we don't even know if the immune system raises an effective immune response to it that provides what's called immune memory. So you think of a vaccination, we get vaccinated, that protects us in the future, right? Uh, many diseases are that way as well, right? You can think of probably you and I both had chicken pox. We then uh, will not get chicken pox again, um, even though that latent virus can reactivate. Uh, but we don't even know if that's the case with this novel coronavirus, that someone who's had it once can't get it again in the future. Now, I think that sounds a little doomsday-y, and I think most scientists are pretty optimistic that we'll at least get some sort of protection from an immune response to this. Um, I have to say, based upon studies done on uh, previous coronaviruses, it seems that the protection people get against some of the other coronaviruses that exist that contribute to the common cold is not on the means of decades or even four to five years. It's usually you get protection for maybe a year or something like that. So that's still valuable, right? Because that buys us time. And so I'm optimistic that hopefully people who have been exposed to this will get some immune protection from a immediate or very soon secondary infection. So in, I believe, Korea, there were some reports of people testing positive for the virus uh, weeks after they had already recovered from a primary illness, which had people a little bit worried. But just recently, it seems to have been identified that that was, um, they, they weren't false positives, but they weren't really active infections. Those individuals still had fragments of the virus in their system being cleared uh, as some of their dying cells were being uh, sort of cleared away. And those were sparking a positive because some of that nucleic acid, that, that genetic material from the virus was still around. 
So it still seems optimistic that we are able to clear this and at least get some protection, but we don't know enough about it really, in my opinion, to say, give out like an immune passport. You've had this, you test positive via the antibody test, and now you can go and interact in ways because you have some sort of protection. And, and if you're saying like we, that we won't know how long that lasts, if there is, even if there's immunity immediately, right? And for yeah. even a few months later, you don't know if it's gonna last for a year or two years or five to 10. So, um, and we won't know that until all that time passes, right? And right, right. So, this virus has never existed in humans until November of this year, right? And so we have, can only guess based upon other coronaviruses and we don't really know and we won't know until we try to track people who have had it and see if they become reinfected and how soon or if they never do. Uh, one of the other challenges is uh, by, by their nature, oftentimes these antibody tests initially when they're being developed have pretty high false positive rates. And so not unsurprisingly, a lot of the antibody tests right now have relatively high false positive rates to them. And this isn't as much of an issue if we're trying from a public health perspective to track a disease and its movement through the population because there's corrections you can do to your models to correct for false positive rates. But where it becomes an amazingly important issue is if you're trying to claim that people who have that antibody test that's positive are protected and they can go and interact in ways that uh, work under the assumption that they're immune. If we have a false positive rate that's relatively high and that person really doesn't have those antibodies, that's particularly problematic. And some of these false positive rates are coming in at like 5% false positive. Well, most of the United States right now is probably sitting somewhere at 5% or less with their actual uh, number of people infected. So you can imagine if you have 5% of the population infected at a given point, but you also have a 5% false positive rate, now all of a sudden your test is only a coin flip as to whether that's a real positive person being detected or one of your false positives. So, so the false positive, that's a, that's a real problem if we're talking about the antibody test. Um, for, for the first test you talked about, yeah. just to detect whether somebody is infected or not, the problem there is false negatives, right? It, 100%, yeah. The, how the prevalent false, is that? False, so false positives in the detecting the infection rate um, when you're looking for the genetic material are very rare. So that's one of the advantages of that so-called PCR test is that um, where they're being done in professional labs, false positive rates are very low yeah. for that. But the false negative rate does seem to be high. Um, and I've read uh, where people might be estimating it even um, around you know, 20, 15, 20% false, uh, false negative, which now means that you're calling, saying someone does not have a coronavirus infection or does not have COVID-19 even when they do have that uh, genetic material in them. And there's many examples of where individuals can say, I was tested this date, I was negative, tested this date, I was positive, tested this date, I was negative again, and sort of this wavering. And some of that might be due to the test, um, but some of it probably also has to do with the testing procedure. Uh, remember the swab that we talked about, that's, 
that's something that you know it takes a professional to do, but we don't always have highly trained individuals doing that necessarily at some of these huge testing sites. Um, it's sometimes hard for a patient to tolerate, so they'll pull back and maybe you don't get a good scrape uh, or a, a good swab of the nasopharynx. And so these things can play a role in testing accuracy as well. And does the, uh, does the lab that's doing the test, are, they have different kinds of tests, right? Uh, yeah. I, I know Gunderson locally here, Gunderson has developed their own test. Mayo Clinic has developed another test. Yeah. Um, are, do these have different rates or are they basically doing the same thing? They, they do have different rates. And so I know Abbott has one uh, that they've developed that's extremely fast. So some, so with a lot of them, they might take a while, right? Like if I was doing this in my research lab, it would take several hours, but now there are versions of this that can be ramped up to be done in less than an hour. And some of these that are being, are on the market and are being ramped up for much quicker results seem to also have some of the higher false negative rates associated with them. And so this is a large part of it right now is not everyone is even doing the exact same test. We have, you know, different false negative, false positive rates, different specificity. Uh, and so uh, this becomes a, a challenge certainly as well. So an, another thing I wanted to talk to you about while you're here is uh, the idea of herd immunity. Because uh, we're hearing that, like, I know early on in this pandemic, some people were saying, like, we were approaching this whole thing wrong. We should allow much more exposure to the virus to develop herd immunity. Um, and, and I don't know if that's been Sweden's goal, but I've heard some people talk about, like, that's what Sweden is attempting to do. I'm not so sure that that's that's the goal of theirs, but just tell us like, how does herd immunity work and yeah. whether that is something that we are going to reach at some point in time? Yeah, that's a great question. So I'm glad people are thinking of herd immunity and are discussing it because that means that it's gotten into the lexicon enough uh, from a public health perspective that people know that this is a good thing that provides enormous protection for many diseases uh, in uh, society. However, uh, so the way herd immunity works is once you reach a certain uh, percentage of the population that has been infected with a disease and has immunity to it, that then others in the population who either uh, have not had the disease or cannot raise an immune response to it, immune compromised individuals, uh, those will be actually protected by the herd because the uh, pathogen cannot pass enough uh, through the the actual uh, population in order to reach everyone. And so herd immunity is a function of how easily a pathogen spreads, right? So with SARS uh, coronavirus 2, this novel coronavirus, it right now I believe is being estimated to have an R naught or a uh, like one individual will infect on average maybe three people. And these things change, right? Because they change greatly with things like social distancing, that number drops down. Um, but one way or another, most of the best estimates right now suggest that in order to gain herd immunity to this pathogen, 60 to 70% of our population would have to be protected from it. Now that is not a particularly hard thing to do if we have a vaccine, right? And so when we talk about herd immunity to measles being so important and how we've seen examples of herd immunity being broken in certain communities uh, when vaccination levels drop. So that's with the aid of a vaccination, right? Yeah. Herd immunity 
in the absence of a vaccination for a disease like this that is relatively deadly means you're going to have a high, high number of casualties. And so this could just be, this is the sort of arithmetic uh, calculation that you could do sort of on your own. But right now, if we have to think of 70% of a population being, or 60%, having been exposed to this in order to gain herd immunity, you could do the calculation of that percentage of the uh, population of the United States gain, uh, getting this illness. Now, right now, um, you'll hear people talk about fatality rates uh, for this virus. And one of the key things to remember is there's two sorts of fatality rates. Uh, there's the case fatality rate, right? So someone who has a diagnosed case will actually go to the doctor for it. And what percentage of those do not make it? Right now, best estimates suggest that's around 6% from what I've seen in most places. Mm -hmm. So 6%, one out of every 18 or so individuals who have COVID-19, go to the doctor for it, get diagnosed as such, uh, will pass from this illness. Versus the infection fatality rate, which again, because of these silent spreaders that we talked about earlier, is much, much lower. Uh, probably somewhere on the, uh, on the scale of 0.8% percent of individuals who are infected with it will die, one out of every 125 or so, let's say. And so one out of every 18 or so people who have the disease will pass, one out of every 125 people who are infected with the virus will pass. Now, if you think about that one out of every 125, and we still need to get 70% of the United States infected, and then one out of every 125 of those aren't going to make it, that's an enormous, enormous casualty burden on the lakes that we have never seen in the United States. Right. right. So, and one thing yeah, to keep yeah. in mind is that these numbers are estimates, and of course, they depend on, you know, someone's particular comorbidities. But we talk about these percentages from a population level, right? And so, right. your your chances of you got infected aren't probably going to be the same as someone else who has a a lot of uh, who's older and has more comorbidities or other diseases associated. But. So ultimately the goal really is herd immunity, right? Um, if, if, if this spreads at the rate that it does, it's, it's a new virus. We don't have natural immunity to it. We're, we're going to have to develop some kind of immunity. Otherwise it just keeps going. Right. Um, so the, that's why a vaccine is so important. And so we're not going to stop this without a vaccine. Is that correct? You know, I, there, there are a lot of people who I think would debate this in many ways, but as we gain more immunity to this as a population, rates will drop off. But what we want to be careful of is not overwhelming the medical uh, the medical infrastructure, right? Because if we overwhelm that, then now all of a sudden our fatality rates go up because those are a function of treatment. Well, it doesn't they have to in Italy, right? It, it yeah. Overwhelmed. I think their fatality rate was more like fifteen percent. It was. Yeah. Much and you higher. talk about Sweden, even Sweden, who there. I do not think that their goal is really trying to get herd immunity because they're not really. I mean, they still are canceling like large events, right? 
They, mm -hmm. they don't have concerts. They don't have any of this. They just are still keeping schools open and they are letting uh, younger folks still go to restaurants and bars and things like that. And they're counting on older and immune compromised people to self-isolate. So to me, they're sort of doing social distancing light and they are seeing their rates go up much higher. And in fact, I, I know some of, uh, I've heard reports where uh, some hospitals in Sweden are being a bit overwhelmed. And if you're over 80, you don't, you're not getting a ventilator. And so you're right, herd immunity is the goal. Vaccine is the gold standard to get there. It's going to take us a while. So there are probably going to be other important aspects to slowing this down, right? Whether it be treating, so developing treatments that can actually aid, or like I mentioned before, the ability to test highly. And if we can test enough people, trace who they've had contact with, and isolate these people, we can really drastically slow the spread of this disease. Okay, yeah. Okay, so, so treatments to really lower the mortality rate, and then, and then the testing and isolation as a way of cut, can get the disease to drop, die out in that way. Yeah, and it, if you can, you know, if you look at, say, New Zealand right now, New Zealand has been testing highly and testing often, and they went very strongly into test, trace, isolate early. And right now, I think I just read uh, this morning that it's been seven days since the entire country has seen a uh, case that seems to have come from within the country and not come from outside of the country, right. which is, you know, pretty stark success story. Now, a small island country, there are certain advantages that they would have, but uh, there, uh, there are ways to at least be optimistic to try to get this under control that can occur before we get a vaccine, which will take time and money and infrastructure and it will not, it can't happen overnight. Good. Well, I don't, I don't know what kind of a rabbit hole we're going to go down now if I ask you to talk about vaccines, but could you, like, I think it was, I, I'd heard, I didn't read the story myself, but I heard the president announced we're going to have a vaccine by the end of the year, by end of 2020. Um, I, you know, I've heard various uh, kind of projections about when that could be developed. Like, what is, what is the obstacle to developing an effective vaccine quickly? Yeah. So there's, there's several obstacles. Um, the number one obstacle, I think, is an important obstacle. And it's really where it gets complicated and it gets into the ethical considerations that you discuss uh, greatly. But we're in the middle of a pandemic where lots and lots of people are losing their lives on one hand. And so we're in desperate need of something like a vaccine. But on the other hand, vaccines are the safest known uh, uh, health sort of preventative measure that we have out there and the most effective. And part of that is because they undergo very strict and very stringent safety uh, protocols, right? And uh, the sort of process that a vaccine generally will go through to ensure that it uh, has efficacy and that it has safety, you know, how much can we shorten that? How much can we skimp, skimp or how much can we skip on that when we're in such an amazing emergency situation right now. And I think that's where a lot of discussion is going to occur. How much are we willing to compromise 
knowing that this vaccine is safe versus having it go as fast as possible. So that's one, one aspect. And there's interesting and neat models out there where you can see the different stages of a vaccine being produced when it comes to say trials and then it comes to uh, production and then it comes to scaling up and then it comes to uh, administration. And you can try to shrink some of these and see how these timelines change. And so the other aspect is just literal production. Like any other sort of product, we need to actually scale up factories to produce the number of doses of this that we would need uh, is really pretty uh, mind-blowing how fast it has to happen and just what that means from sort of the supply chain side of things. And I know that's one huge challenge and people are talking about it already that if we're going to really scale this up and make it happen fast, we have to be building the factories now so that we have them waiting when we even don't really know which one of these vaccines is going to win out, which approach, which style, which equipment we're going to need to make it because there's different types of vaccines being tested, uh, all of which have different sort of equipment that might be necessary in order to do that. And so we've got to sort of be building this car as we're trying to drive down the road, which is uh, a challenge that's unlike most vaccines we develop. That's interesting because I, I mean, I assume there are labs all over the world working on developing a vaccine and they're experimenting with different kinds that may or may not have promise. Sure. Uh, but there's some things that we could do to develop within this country, I guess, develop the infrastructure as we go, even before we find out which one of all the kind of uh, vaccine possibilities that are being tested in the world because we don't know where that's going to come from, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's hugely competitive. If I had to guess, I would guess that hopefully I'm being optimistic. I hope there's several approaches that are going to work and that some might be better for some countries than others. And that's the way vaccines have worked in the past is that the vaccine that we give in the United States is not always the same that's given in uh, less developed nations because of just requirements for storage even. Like we have less requirements in this country for having to be able to keep our vaccines always at room temperature or in even a pretty hot room because we generally have access to coolants and or refrigeration and not everywhere has that. So there has been different approaches for different countries uh, with vaccines in the past and I suspect something similar will happen, but to make a billion doses of anything is an awful lot to try to get uh, done in any sort of scale. Well, the, and, and I think the um, getting public acceptance for this is going to be a real challenge too. I'm just following social media. I've, I've seen uh, an alarming number of posts from people saying, there's no way I'm getting a vaccine. And um, um, just like we've already got growing resistance to things like influenza vaccines and measles vaccines and things like that in this country. Um, uh, and now we're talking about ramping something up pretty quickly before it goes through all the kinds of testing. I would guess that that is going to create even more public suspicion of how safe these vaccines will be. Sure. I, which is, I think, gets at kind of the, the issue of why I think it is very important that we do still make sure, you know, first do no harm, that we are making sure that these are as safe as, as they typically are. And uh, 
I don't doubt that there will be a percentage of people who will be resistant uh, or will not uh, be willing to be vaccinated. I hope that for this, that is quite a bit less than it is for other things like seasonal influenza. Because when we're talking about a global pandemic that is um, really killing people at a, at a rate and in absolute numbers of something that we have not seen, uh, I would hope that would convince a lot of people, but there are certainly a percentage of people that will probably not be convinced. Now, that percentage is smaller, I think, sometimes than we feel as compared to uh, the volume or the rate at which we see them covered in social media and, and things like that. They have a, a large social media presence, but when you look at actual polling and people uh, uh, and their acceptance uh, and support for vaccines, it's generally quite high. And I, I think we're probably going to have to, at some point, do some real public service messaging about the the importance of getting the vaccine for the safety of others, not just for yourself, but as as something that's going to protect others from from possibly death, right? Yeah, I think it is one of the things that sometimes is quite disheartening is the level of selfishness that you see sometimes out there and to not be exhausted by that, by people who really, really have a hard time sometimes thinking of other people. And you can see that with, you know, some of the protests and things like that, that really, you know, it's not always for you or about you. Sometimes as a society, we do things to protect those that are most vulnerable. At least I would hope in the sort of society that, you know, we wouldn't want to live in, that that would be the sort of thing that we would do. Well, as the year goes on and we get more news about the development of vaccines or possible vaccines, and, and um, I might want to come back to you and see if you'll sit down and we can just talk about this again. So thanks a lot, Chris. This is yeah. really good. I, I think I learned a lot. So I, I hope the people that listen to this learn something too. So appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah, you bet. Take care. One of these days we'll see each other in the hallway. I just don't know when that will be. Yeah, it'll, it'll happen. <laughs> okay. It'll happen. All right. Thank okay. you, Mark. Thanks a lot.